Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside Podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I'm so excited to have a brand new guest with us today. I've read two of his books and they are phenomenal. They are yellow. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> they look awesome on my shelf. Near Al, welcome. Thank you so much, Ginny. It's great to be here. Your books are fantastic. I learned so much. I would say that the thing I'm most excited to try, although I'm kind of nervous about it, is putting up a calendar for exercise and hanging a little $100 bill on it with a lighter nearby. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have all of these fantastic ideas about becoming indistractable. This book, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, also Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. They're both fantastic. I've come away with all sorts of new ideas. Can we start with this incredible idea of putting a $100 bill next to I mean, this has worked for you. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm uh, 45 years old. I'm in the best shape of my life. I have a six pack abs. I've never had them before. I used to be clinically obese. So it's definitely not because I have good genes. It's just because I consistently do what I say I'm going to do. And and look, Ginny, I wrote this book for me more than anyone else. Uh, mm. I am indistractable today because I used to be highly distractible. Uh, in fact, it took me five years to write this book because I kept getting distracted. And so it really was, you know, they say research is me search. So I wrote this book for me more than anyone else. And uh, a big thing that I was struggling with uh, was that I would say I was going to do one thing and I didn't do it, right? I said I was going to exercise. I said I was going to eat right, but I didn't and I wouldn't. And so one of these techniques that I uncovered, and this is, I, I want to make sure I warn everybody, this technique comes last. The model that I'm sure we're going to get into has four distinct steps. And this is the thing you want to do last. So I feel a little bit cautious talking about it first, but since you asked about it, I'm happy to tell you more. So it's called the burn or burn technique. And the burn or burn technique, this is how I, I invented this. It comes out of this psychology around making a pact, a pre-commitment. And so the pre-commitment I made to myself was that every morning when I wake up, I go to my dresser and in my dresser on the inside door, there is a calendar taped to the wall, right? Mm -hmm. And on today's date, there is taped a fresh, crisp $100 bill. And above this calendar, there's a shelf. On that shelf is a Bic lighter. And my job every morning for the past, what has it been now, four or five years now, my job every day is I have a choice to make. I can either burn some calories by going on a walk, doing some push-ups, going to the gym, anything, like any physical activity. That was the, the goal I set for myself. You, you can change it if you want, right? But my yeah. goal was to do some kind of physical activity every single day that I'm at home. If I'm traveling, then the rule doesn't count. Mm -hmm. But if I'm at home, I see that calendar, I see the dollar bill, I can either burn some calories or I have to light the $100 bill on fire, which is the, the burn or burn technique. Now, Sounds terrible. Some people are saying, well, that's illegal. You're not allowed to burn legal tender. <laughs> of course not, right? Like I've never burned the money, right? It's been yeah. almost five years now, I would guess. I've never burned the money because instead of burning the money, I say to myself, okay, fine. I'll do some push-ups. Fine. I'll go for a quick walk. I'll do something wow. so that I can maintain that personal integrity with myself to say, yep, I did the exercise. But to be honest, Ginny, 
I don't even need it anymore, right? I used to need it because I hated exercises and I wouldn't do it. Now it's become something I just do every day. Mm. I don't even need that $100 bill anymore because it's become part of my daily routine. What a method. What a method. <laughs> I <laughs> I went, I was going to order a calendar. I'm like, this is a fantastic idea. Then I got a little <laughs> nervous. You say though, this is one of the things that does make people kind of nervous. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, this has to do with a lot of, I think, self-limiting beliefs that I think we have this perception that for whatever reason, we just can't, right? And you hear people coming up with all kinds of excuses. Uh, I have undiagnosed ADHD. I'm no good with time management. Uh, I'm not a morning person. I'm a Sagittarius. You hear people espousing these truly self-limiting beliefs. And I think the way to test these self-limiting beliefs is to ask yourself, hey, if I was going to pay you $100, or if I was going to not burn $100, would you do this? And if that, and if you're saying, well, maybe for more money, okay, let, let's up the price. Let's say for $10,000. You know, I hear from a lot of people who are struggling with social media, you know, too much social media or mm -hmm. too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook. There's always, you know, something mm -hmm. that distracts people. And so I asked them, I said, you know, look, if tomorrow you didn't do the thing you said you were going to do and you had to pay me $10,000, would you do it? That thing that you've been procrastinating on, the mm. thing that you know you need to do, but you haven't done, cleaning out the garage or that big project at work, making your sales calls. I don't know, whatever it is that the thing that you said you were going to do, would you do it for $10,000? Yeah, of course I would do it. Okay, great. So we've established you can. Mm. Now we're negotiating the price. I mean, I love this idea of a price pact. I never heard of it and I love it. It led to your six pack of abs because, you know, everyone says <laughs> if you try a diet or you try an exercise, like people don't last for very long. They end up falling back into their old ways or it doesn't stick. And for you, it's stuck for years, four or five years. But I like what you said, the sort of humanness behind it is that we're more motivated to avoid losses than to seek gains. So it's like, oh, you're like, right. oh, I want to look better. I would like to feel better. But really, it's like, no, I just don't want to burn that $100 bill. That's right. This is called loss aversion. It's one of the key principles from behavioral economics. And it's a very well-studied phenomenon that we hurt more from loss than we benefit from gain. Now, again, we have to back up because this is what you do last. This is I like know, the, <laughs> the firewall against distraction. So I do not want people to listen to this and say, okay, great. Now I'm going to you know, go tape a $100 bill to my wall and, and I'll start exercising. No, you will <laughs> fail 100%. It will not work unless you do the other three preceding steps. All right. Okay. So let's back up. Well, let's start with just this whole concept of being distracted because we live in an age and we're trying to help our kids and model for them balance and help them to live these lives that have balance between screens and real life. And we're trying to do it for ourselves as well. So you just do such a fabulous job of walking the reader through why they even get distracted in the first place. So can you talk about the parallel between distraction and discomfort? Sure. Why are we where we're at to begin with? Yeah. Okay. So let's start from the very beginning. <laughs> let's start with what the word distraction even means. So one of the best ways to test yourself and see, do you really know what a word means is to ask yourself, what's the antonym? What's the opposite of that word? The opposite of distraction. If you ask most people, they will tell you the opposite of distraction is focus, right? I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused, mm -hmm. but that's not exactly right. That if you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Hmm. This was a kind of a revelation to me. I never noticed that before. But if you look at the two words, right, there's traction and distraction. Yeah. They are opposites. In fact, they both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. Hmm. And they both end with the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action, reminding us 
that distraction is not something that happens to us. It is an action that we take. Mm -hmm. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. Mm -hmm. Now, the opposite of traction, distraction, is any action that pulls you away from what you said you were going to do, away from your values, away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So we've got traction and distraction. Now, what differentiates traction and distraction is one word. And that one word is forethought. So the time you plan to waste is not wasted time, as Dorothy Parker said. So there's nothing wrong about playing video games or going on social media or staring at the sky or whatever it is you want to do. I don't care. Do it. But do it on your schedule not someone else's. So we need to stop moralizing and medicalizing. You hear a lot of people saying, oh, the you know, technology is melting your brain and it's doing this. No, if you want to do it, enjoy. There's nothing wrong with social media. There's nothing wrong with going online and connecting with your friends or playing video games or whatever it is you want to do with your time. But do it according to your values, your schedule, not someone mm -hmm. else's. Conversely, and more importantly, maybe, what we find people miss is that they think that just because something is a work-related task, that it's not somehow also a distraction, mm. right? Let me see if this is familiar to you at all. So for years, I would sit down at my desk and I would say, okay, I've got that big project that I've been meaning to work on. I'm not going to get distracted. Nothing's going to get in my way. I'm not going to procrastinate. Here I go. I'm going to get started right now. But first, let me check some email, <laughs> right? Let me just check the news real quick, see what's happening in the world. Or let me just uh, scroll that Slack channel, see what's happening at the office. Okay? And what I didn't realize is that that is the most dangerous, most pernicious form of distraction. Mm. It happens at home too. When we say, okay, I definitely, this is my top priority. I've got to do this, but let me just clean the room real quick and the trash needs to be taken out. Or let me do this. Let me do that. Even if it looks productive, right? Even if we think it's a productive task, if it's not what you said you were going to do, it is by definition a distraction. And in fact, if we don't realize that, what will happen is We'll do the urgent and the easy work at the expense of the hard and important work we have to do to move our lives and careers forward. So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. So now we've got traction. Mm -hmm. We've got distraction. What prompts us to these actions? Well, here's where the triggers come in. There are two kinds of triggers. We have external triggers. External triggers are the usual suspects. You know, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment mm -hmm. that can lead to traction or distraction. Now, it turns out even though that's what people tend to blame for their distractions, studies find they only account for about 10% wow. of the reason we go off track, 10%. Wow. So 90% of the time that you go off track, it's not because of what's happening outside of you. And this gets to your question. It's about what's happening inside of you. These are called internal triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, anxiety, stress, these are these uncomfortable sensations that are the root cause mm. of 90% of our distractions because distraction overwhelmingly is an impulse control problem. And wow. the fact of the matter is most of us, I certainly included, have never been taught how to deal with discomfort in a healthy way that leads us towards traction. So we create these coping mechanisms to escape that uncomfortable sensation with distraction. So whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, you're always going to find distraction if you don't recognize and deal with that uncomfortable emotional state. So now, now we have our four steps. Step number one, master the internal triggers. If you don't master your internal triggers, they will become your masters. Mm -hmm. Step number two, 
make time for traction. We could talk about how you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you want traction in your life, you have to do what we call turn your values into time. We can talk about exactly how to do that. Then step three, hack back the external triggers so that even though they only account for about 10% of our distractions, those pings, dings, and rings, we can systematically go through all those, as well as all the external triggers we may not recognize, like our kids can be a huge source of distraction. Those pointless meetings we didn't need to attend, those stupid emails that didn't need to be sent or replied to, all of those can be external triggers. And then last, as the last step, the firewall against, uh, against distraction is preventing distraction with packs. And this is where we have price packs, which we just talked about with the burn or burn method. You've got identity packs and you've got effort packs. So we can talk about all that, but essentially if you use these four tactics in concert, this is how anyone can become indistractable. Mm -hmm. Wow, oh, the book is phenomenal. Thank you. So many cool ideas, so many things I learned. Well, let's start with this, how do we handle discomfort? That's actually a really big question. And I've noticed with our youngest child, she's seven, if she gets really upset about something, then she'll be like, can I watch a cartoon? <laughs> So I was like, okay, all right, yeah, we're, we're already starting young, right? Right, that that's yeah, what she's seeking yeah. to sort of, yeah, like you said, soothe. So what are some of your ways, I know you talked in this book about the leaves on the stream method, mm -hmm. you know, putting your problems on the leaf, then visualizing them going down the stream. I mean, this is the baseline problem here, right? Like this is step one. And I would imagine that over the last several years, it's gotten worse with the world and people being afraid of things and all sorts of things like that. So they have all these internal triggers. Right, yeah. How do we help? How do we deal with those? Absolutely, and okay, so one thing maybe that's a common misconception is that this is a new problem. Mm. And in fact, we know that this has been a problem for at least the past 2,500 years. Why do I put that exact date? Because that <laughs> you were is gonna when say 25. Plato... Oh, no. 2,500. <laughs> no, no, much, much farther than that. <laughs> 2,500 years ago. So this is when Plato, the Greek philosopher, talked about akrasia in the Greek, the tendency to do things against our better interest. Mm. So this has been a problem forever, right? Uh, we, we have always known that people get distracted from one thing or another. And I think it's a really interesting mystery. Why is that? Why is it that despite knowing what to do, we don't do it, especially today when maybe previous generations, you know, maybe our grandparents could say, well, I don't know how to do something, right? Mm -hmm. How can I possibly uh, start a business or write a book or whatever? I don't know how. Today, our generation doesn't have that excuse. If you don't know how to do something, Google it. It's all there, right? Yeah. All the knowledge is there on how to do what you want in life. We just have to go implement it. So the problem is not that we don't know what to do, it's that we don't know how to get out of our own way. How many problems do we know the answer to? We basically know, mm -hmm. right? But we don't do it because we keep getting distracted. So what are some of these tactics that we can start mastering these internal triggers? Well, your daughter's example is very apropos that uh, what she's doing essentially, she's escaping some kind of discomfort, some emotional distress mm -hmm. with some kind of self-soothing mechanism. Mm -hmm. And this is why we do anything and everything. I think this is an important revelation that we used to think that human motivation was about carrots and sticks, right? That uh, it's about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. If you do this, you get something good. If you do that, something bad. Turns out if you go a layer deeper, what's actually happening in the brain is that the brain motivates us to action, not for the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, but actually for one thing and one thing only. And that is the desire to escape discomfort. Unbelievable. That even wanting something, craving, desire, lusting, hungering for something mm -hmm. is itself psychologically destabilizing. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, that means that all behavior is about a desire to escape discomfort, which means therefore, time management is pain management. Money management 
is pain management. Weight management is pain management. It's all pain management. Wow. So that means that if we want to change our behavior, we have to learn new tactics to cope with discomfort. And there's over a dozen different techniques. Let me share with you one technique that I use every single day. So I've been a professional author for well over a decade now. And I, you know, many times I read books in, in the, the genre and there's a lot of habit books out there. Right. And a lot of these books talk about, you know, if you want to get into a writing habit, well, look, I've been a professional author for over a decade. I have no idea what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> writing has never come easy. I don't know how to write from a habit. The definition of a habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. How do I write with little or no conscious thought? You can make a writing routine, yeah. right? That's a series of behaviors frequently repeated, but a habit, no way. Writing is super hard work. Mm -hmm. And all I want to do when I'm writing is check email for a quick sec, or let me just Google this fact, or let me do anything to sabotage myself to do anything but what I have to actually do that I don't feel like doing. So I came across in, in the course of my research, a few techniques, I'll share one with you now that comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. And this is called the 10 minute rule. The 10 minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction, anything you want. You're a grown person. You have the right to partake in whatever you want. And this technique works if you are trying to uh, uh, stop checking email so much or social media, or maybe you're trying to quit smoking, or maybe you're trying to not eat that chocolate cake, whatever the case might be, whatever you're struggling with that you find yourself getting distracted from. What you do is you don't tell yourself no. You don't tell yourself no, because we, we understand now that telling yourself not to do something elicits what's called psychological reactance. That if you ever heard uh, when you were a kid, your mom say, put on a coat because it's cold outside. And you say, don't tell me what to mm -hmm. do. Or maybe you had a, a boss that micromanaged you, right? Yeah. You know how that feels like? It feels pretty crummy. So reactance is the psychological instinct that we all have to rebel when we're told what to do. Now, here's how weird the human brain is that we will actually trigger reactance even when we tell ourselves what to do. So you don't want to tell yourself no, mm -hmm. you want to tell yourself not yet. Mm -hmm. So when I'm writing and all I want to do is something else, I tell myself, okay, I can do that thing. I can check email, I can do whatever in 10 minutes. Not right now, in 10 minutes. And that disables that psychological reactance, right? And then I have a choice to make. I can either get back to the task at hand, or I can do what's called surf the urge. Surfing the urge acknowledges that you do not control your feelings. You do not control your urges. Many people think that they should be able to control their feelings. That's not how it works, folks. You don't control your feelings. You only control how you will respond to your urges, how you will respond to your feelings, hence the term responsibility. So if I feel the urge to sneeze, I can't control the urge to sneeze. I already felt it. It already happened. It's in the past. If I registered the urge to sneeze, it's already there. Mm -hmm. All I can do is to decide how I res will respond to that urge. Am I going to sneeze all over everyone and make them sick? Or am I going to take out a tissue and cover my face? Because that's the responsible thing to do. Mm -hmm. The same goes for our urges, whether it's, oh, I have the urge to check social media or the urge to eat that snack or the urge to do whatever. If I can just sit with that sensation and realize that that sensation crests and then subsides, just like a wave. You, you, in the moment, you think it's going to last forever, but that's never the case. Wow. These urges, they come and go like waves. And your job is to surf the urge like a surfer on a surfboard. And there are many ways to do that. I talk about many in the book. Yeah. One of my favorites is to have a simple mantra. And you can make up any mantra you'd like. Whatever gives you strength. Mine, I'll share my personal mantra, is that whenever I have one of these moments where I have this urge that I want to give into, if I can just catch myself, and identify what that sensation is, 
I'll set a clock, you know, I'll just tell my phone, set a timer for 10 minutes. And now I just have this choice to make. I can get back to the task at hand or I can surf the urge by, in, in my case, you can do it differently if you want. But in my case, when I have that 10 minutes, mm -hmm. I shut my eyes for just a few seconds and I repeat a mantra. My mantra is, this is what it feels like to get better. This is what it feels like to get better. And just saying that just a few times, maybe wow. three or four times, it sounds a little silly. It's unbelievably effective because it just reminds me, look, the fact that this is hard means that I'm getting better. If it was easy, everyone would do it, wow. right? And so if time management is pain management, just telling myself, this is what it feels like to get better. This is normal. You know, we have such an aversion in our society that we never need to experience discomfort. We never need to experience pain. We never need to experience struggle. If we're hurting somehow, that's bad. No, not true. That pain and discomfort is oftentimes a signal that we are growing. So if we can reframe that discomfort as, okay, this is something healthy. This is something that I'm getting better at then that can help us surf that urge long enough for that sensation to dissipate. And then what you will notice is that by the time those 10 minutes are up, you'll be back at that task at hand. And so that's a very, those are just a few tips. There's over a dozen different other things you can do to master the internal triggers, but that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. What a thing to learn. I'm so glad you like it. What a thing to learn <laughs> and for us to teach our kids too. You wrote, look for the discomfort. The only way to handle distraction is by learning to handle discomfort. And then you give the tools on how to do that. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle 
at Vessi.com slash outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. And I really love the part that you're talking about, like that you, it does feel normal. Like I think when you have an urge to basically like, okay, so mine would be like to stay in bed, right? So like you get up to exercise, you get this urge, you want to stay in bed. So then you don't do what you think you should do or know you should do that type of thing. But this whole crest and subside thing, it's not common knowledge that the urge goes away. Because I think, so I'll speak on my own behalf. It's like, I maybe never given it enough time to subside. Yeah. So if I've never had the practice of learning that it will go away, right? then I've got the thought that it's always going to be like that. And so I can't change. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. And more so, what I used to do, what many people do, is I used to ruminate on that sensation. Mm. Right? So I don't feel like getting out of bed today. Am I ever going to feel like getting out of bed today? What if I never get back my motivation? What are my kids going to say? What? And I started ruminating and going in cycles and cycles about this. And of course, what happens, right? The more you ruminate on something, the more you feel the internal triggers, which causes you to seek even more distraction. Wow. So what we have to do is essentially break that rumination cycle by acknowledging to ourselves, this is normal. Yeah. This is supposed to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and guess what? Those urges, those sensations, they're just waves. You know, we when we're angry, we think we're always going to be angry, but that's not the case. When we're sad, we think we're always going to be sad, but that's not the case. So mm-hmm. we know that these urges, these feelings, these emotions, these are very important signals that our brains are sending us. But you are not your thoughts. Mm-hmm. You are not your thoughts. You're not your feelings. These feelings are just signals that are helping us make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. But we don't have to ha- let them guide our behaviors. We can just take them as input, acknowledge their presence, not push them or uh, away in any way, but just acknowledge with curiosity that they exist. And most importantly, have tools ready to go that when we feel these internal triggers, when we feel this discomfort, we don't immediately try and escape it. What many people do is they just, I don't want to feel this anymore. How can I escape it? So let me turn on the TV. Let me drink something that makes me feel better. Let me take a pill. Let me do something that makes it feel better. One of my favorite counterintuitive quotes is don't do something, just sit there. As opposed to don't just sit there, do something. Sometimes the right thing to do is sit there for a bit, right? Just Mm -hmm. feel that sensation and train your brain to realize, hey, nothing bad's going to happen. And so what happens over time when you set that 10 minute rule, and, and we find that you know you can do pretty much anything for 10 minutes. So for example, you used to have this feeling of, oh, I don't want to get out of bed. And even though I said I was going to get out of bed time, I don't want to get out mm-hmm. of bed. So I'll tell myself, you know, I'm just going to get out of bed for five minutes, five minutes, then I'm going to get back into bed if I feel like wow. it. So I made the 10 minute rule into the five minute rule. Okay. But then of course you get up and you can, you can get up for just five minutes, just five minutes. And then I'm going to get right back to bed. Well, guess what? In the course of five minutes, even if I got back into bed, mm. next time, maybe I'll try seven minutes and then 10 minutes and then 20 minutes. And so the rule expands out. And what you're doing most importantly, Jenny, the most important thing is that you're training self-agency. Wow. That's the most important thing. You are training yourself to realize, wait a minute, I can do this. It's no big deal, right? Because I did it before. I did it a hundred times, this 10-minute rule. It worked and worked and worked. Okay, maybe I can do it again. Wow. And so it's all about self-efficacy and Mm self-agency. Well, and then you learn. You learn that if I do this, I know that in six minutes, I'm going to feel better. I'm going to feel completely different because that is what happens when you have to get up. Like if you have to get up for some sort of thing or something that you're responsible for, 
And then you're like, uh, but you do, you do feel better in six or seven minutes or five minutes or whatever it is. This is like profoundly impactful. There's so much in here. I really was taken with this sentence that says, we must disavow the misguided idea that if we're not happy, we're not normal. Exactly the opposite is true. So this is comes back to that point of it's very normal to feel unsatisfied and to feel unhappy and that this is our body's way of pushing us toward better things and not just being satisfied with the status quo. Absolutely. In fact, I would argue that being happy is abnormal. It's abnormal. It makes no sense. Think about this from an evolutionary mm. perspective. If there was, let's go back 200,000 years to the dawn of our species. And let's say there were two tribes of proto-humans on the plains of the Serengeti. One tribe has this gene that makes them always happy, always contented, always satisfied. And meanwhile, maybe a, a mile or two down the road, our ancestors had their village. Now, our ancestors with all of our dissatisfaction, all our anxiety, all our stress, all our misgivings, all of our wantings and cravings, they have them too. And let's say one day these two tribes meet, the happy tribe and the discontented, mm -hmm. the uncontented tribe. What do you think would happen? I'll, I'll tell you what would happen. Our ancestors would have met these people and then they would have killed them and eaten them. That's what would happen mm -hmm. <laughs> because... From an evolutionary basis, you want a species to be hardwired to always want more. If you're content, if you're in nirvana, if you never want anything more, you don't fight, you don't grow, you don't strive. And that's why our species has reached the moon, how we overturn despots, how we create life-saving medicine. It's because we are never satisfied. So why do we think that somehow we're always supposed to be happy? No, it's unnatural to always be happy. Happiness is by design a fleeting sensation. Wow. So our normal state is always dissatisfied. That doesn't mean you need to be miserable. I'm not having, I'm not miserable right at all. I, I think I have a great life. But I think part of that is because when I feel euphoric, when I feel happy, when I feel satisfied, I realize, wow, that's something to be savored but this too will pass. Mm, it's like the wave. Exactly. That the wave goes up and down. When things are great, I tell myself this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. When things suck and I'm feeling down, I tell myself this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. This is a mind-blowing book. I mean, this is only the first part of it. Like you're talking about, there's four says. <laughs> this is only part. I mean, there's so much in there, so much to learn. And it's things that you could implement like now. And that's another reason why I loved it so much. Like I could do this now. I could get the calendar now. I can do these little packs now. I can work on this 10 minute rule now. And it's not anything that you have to wait for. You can just enter into it wherever you're at with whatever you're dealing with. Let's switch to part two, which is this partially, I guess, this concept of time boxing. It's interesting, Nir, you use words like traction. That's a word that people use, but not in this way. I hadn't heard of it used in this mm -hmm. way, like the opposite of distraction. And so this time boxing concept, which makes so much sense, is another one that I you know, hadn't heard of a whole lot. But can you explain how you use that to protect your time? Sure, absolutely. Let me just comment on one thing you said, and I'm so excited that you see the practicality of this because I really wanted to write a book that not only is backed by good research, right? I, you'll see in the book, there's 30 pages of citations to peer reviewed studies. So it's super important that this is scientifically backed. There's lots and lots of research about everything I say in the book, but also 
I know it works for my own life. So I have implemented these tactics. I worked with thousands of people over the years who implement these tactics. And so it's not just that it's a personal anecdote. It also is backed by really good science. But I want to warn people, you don't have to do everything. Okay. Sometimes when we start talking about, oh, isn't that interesting? I should do this. I should do that. If you're listening to the sound of my voice, if you can just do one of these things, right? Whatever to you sparks some interest. If you can just, whether you buy the book or not, I don't care. If you'd listen to one of these things, you see, you know what? I'm going to try that one thing. Maybe I'm, I'm going to try this 10 minute rule, or maybe I'll have a mantra that I'll repeat next time I feel an internal trigger, or, or maybe I'll try this crazy calendar technique. But again, don't do that first. Read the book if you're going to do the fourth step, because that can really backfire. So that's the idea here. You don't have to do everything all at once. What I recommend for folks is to do just one small thing with each of these four strategies. So we talked about mastering internal triggers. Let's talk about the second step, making time for traction. So traction again is about any action that pulls us towards what we said we were going to do, things that move us closer to our goals and helps us become the kind of people we want to become. It moves us closer to our values. Now, one of the biggest pitfalls that we see out there is that people don't realize that you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. I'm going to say that again. So important. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. If you looked at my calendar back when I was distractible, you'd see it was full of white space, right? Maybe I'd have an appointment here or there, but pretty much my calendar was empty. Now, my to-do list was a mile long. Mm. And we can talk about why to-do lists are one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity. But here's the thing I didn't realize, you know, I would be so flabbergasted by all the things I had to do and I didn't get done. I felt like such a loser because I wasn't doing what I said I was going to do with my to-do list of 100 things. It wasn't until I realized, wait a minute, if I don't plan what I'm going to do with my time, what exactly did I get distracted from? So if you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you, whether it's your boss, your kids, the news, Twitter, somebody's going to eat up that time unless you decide in advance how you will spend your time. Now, how do you do that? You turn your values into time. What are values? I define values as the attributes of the person you want to become. Hmm. So you have to ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time? And now that could be any way you want. If you want to spend your time playing video games, if that's consistent with your values all day, fine, do it. I'm not going to tell you not to. What I want people to do is just to think for a minute about how the person they want to become would spend their time. And then you take out a calendar. You can use Google Calendar on my website. I have a free tool at nearandfar.com forward slash schedule hyphen maker that you can use. You can use a piece of paper. Whatever tool you use is the best tool. And all I want you to do is to just decide in advance how you will spend the next day. Just try that as one exercise. What would the ideal day that would help you live out your values look like? And one tool, if you if you struggle, is to look at these three, what I call life domains. Yeah. The first life domain is you. You're at the center of these three life domains. If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of other people, you can't make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I would fill out in that day is how would the person you want to become spend time taking care of themselves? If prayer is important to you, is that in your schedule? If sleep is important to you, as it very well should be, we all know how important sleep is to our mental and physical well-being. Is that in your calendar? You know, mm. I, I used to tell my daughter, you have to go to bed. It's your bedtime. And she would say, Daddy, do you have a bedtime? She was absolutely right. I was a hypocrite. I didn't have a bedtime. She's right. And so now I have a bedtime, right? So anything that you need to take care of yourself, put that in your calendar first. Mm -hmm. Then your relationships, your relationships with your, uh, your spouse, your parents, your kids, your siblings, most importantly, your friends. Mm -hmm. You know, friendships don't die. They starve to death. Mm -hmm. 
And so that happens because we're not devoting the time to our most important relationships. So put that time in your calendar next. Then last is the work domain. And when it comes to work, we have two kinds of work. We have reactive work, which is reacting to all the pings, dings, and rings, reacting to all the messages, the meetings, all those notifications. That's part of everybody's day. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But you've got to plan for what's called reflective work. Reflective work requires the kind of work that can only be done without distraction, planning, strategizing, thinking. You've got to put that time in your calendar as well. When you do that, invariably, you will not have enough time. That's the point. That's the point. Wow. Because this is this is one of the reasons that to-do lists are so terrible for your productivity. When you put stuff on a to-do list, there's no constraint. Mm. You can add more and more and more and more and more. So you get home from work at the end of the day, got a million things you still haven't done on your to-do list, and you feel like a loser yeah. because you said you were going to do those things and you didn't, yep. right? Whereas a to-do list has a constraint. We all have the same 24 hours in a day. So by putting those things, taking them off your calendar, there's nothing, I'm sorry, off your to-do list, there's nothing wrong with writing things down. But if you don't then put them on your calendar, you're making a mm. huge mistake. You've got to put them in your schedule. And then invariably, you will have to make a trade-off. Wow. You will have to say, wait, do I want more time at work or more time with my kids? Do I want more time watching TV or do I want more time working out? Wow. And that's the point because time is a limited resource. It's very interesting. You know, people are so cheap with money, right? We clip coupons. We split bills. We're so cheap with our money. But when it comes to time, which is non-renewable, by the way, you can always make more money. You can't make more time with time. Yeah, sure. Take it. Oh, there's that stupid thing on Netflix. Okay, let's watch that for two hours. Oh, there's the football game. There's uh, some silly thing happening on Netflix. Oh, my kids want that. My boss wants that. Sure. Take it, take it, take my time. And then at the end of the day, we're exhausted mm -hmm. because we haven't properly budgeted our time, which mm -hmm. is why time boxing is so important. Mm -hmm. So that's just a very brief overview of how to turn your values into time. It's all mind blowing. <laughs> wow. And well, I like, I kind of think, I guess maybe that a lot of people take those three circles and do them in the opposite way mm. that they start with work and then they go to what everybody else needs, my kids, you know, my friends, my family, and then they do themselves. Right. And I love that you wrote, I don't need to remind you to make time for work. <laughs> you really have to fight for time, I think, for the other things. So that three tier, the three circle thing is a really powerful visual this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit betterhelp.com 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash 1000 hours. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day 
every day, and it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. You had really cool ideas. I mean, you talked very candidly about I'm doing this with my own child. Yeah. You know, I was noticing that I'm getting distracted from my daughter. You talked about it with your friends. You say, I actually love this idea. We meet four couples every two weeks to talk about one question. You have like a specific question that you're going to talk about yeah. over yeah. a picnic lunch. What a cool idea. Same place, same time. Yeah, we're doing one uh, this Sunday, actually. We have an, another one of these. It's we, we call it the kibbutz. Kibbutz in Hebrew means gathering. Mm -hmm. And the reason this is so important, you know, we know that we are going through a loneliness epidemic yeah. in the United States and much of the industrialized world because we haven't kept that time on our calendar. As society became more secular, we did away with the church group. We did away with the bowling league. We did away with the Kiwanis club, the mm. weekly gatherings we need as adults wow. to have friends. Well, how come our kids have lots of friends and we don't, mm. <laughs> right? Like, you know, our grandparents had so much more fun than we did. They used to do things together with their friends and we don't, we go home, we watch TV. Wow. And that's a huge mistake because we know that loneliness is as detrimental to our health as smoking and obesity. Unbelievable. You know, think about all the money we spend on those things. And we don't think about this problem of loneliness. And the reason we're, we, that so many people are increasingly lonely is because they don't have that time reserved mm -hmm. for the most important relationship. So one thing that we did is this kibbutz. We just had the question sent out for the week. Actually, my wife just sent it out today that says, here's the question for the week. We'll see you on Sunday. It's only two hours. No, you know, everybody brings their own food. So we don't, it's not a big ordeal. We get together for a couple hours and we just connect. We get real with each other and we talk about something that's, that's on our minds. And that's a really powerful thing to know that a lot can happen in two hours. Because I think someone might be like, well, two hours is not enough. But here it's two hours, one question. Yeah. That's an incredible tool yeah. to make sure that you have these relationships in your life. So, so many great ideas in your book. Can we pop to this? Well, okay. So then you have, you, it's really a neat way that you have this book set up. Then you have all these hacks, which that's what everything is about. Like, give me a hack. I want a hack. And you go through all sorts of different things like group chats, <laughs> meetings, your phone, your desktop, online articles, you know, your scrolling feeds. Can we do, I liked the email one a whole lot yeah. because basically it was like email begets email. Right. Like you right. got to really think about sending that ping pong ball back and forth. Can you talk about if people want to read all the other ones, they got to get the book. It's fantastic, indistractable, how to control your attention and choose your life. But you have hacks for all the things that can take us off track. Right. So let's focus on the email one. I, I love this thought of to receive fewer emails, you got to send fewer emails. Absolutely. Yeah. So so this section of the book, the hack back the external triggers, remember, it's only 10% of the reason we get distracted, but yeah. it's kind of the most the easiest to tick off, right? So when people say, oh, it's my technology that's distracting me, I'm like, well, you know what? I can solve that for you in like 30 minutes, <laughs> right? Like read this section of the book. 
there's so many little things like, you know, two thirds of people with a smartphone never change the notification settings. Really? You, you didn't take five minutes to turn off those constant pings and dings on your cell phone. It's so easy. And the app makers have made it easier and easier to take care of those things. So some of this is a little bit kindergarten stuff. I put like maybe a page or two about your phone and a page or two about your desktop. It's like quick hits, like, like you said, like little life hacks that you could do right away. Email is a big one. Email is a big one. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with email? So let's start with what is the biggest problem with email? The biggest problem with email is that people treat it like a to-do list. And you know what I feel about mm. to-do lists. So what they do is when they don't know what else to do, when they have that internal trigger of, hey, what am I supposed to be doing right now? That uncertainty, that uncomfortable emotional sensation of certainty, what's the solution? Well, let me just check email real quick. Email will tell me what to do. But of course, email doesn't tell you what your values are. Email doesn't tell you what your priorities are, huh. right? Email doesn't help you make trade-offs. It just says, check, 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 check. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that the biggest time waster with email is not the checking. Hmm. It's not the replying. It's the rechecking. And so here's the technique to hack back the external triggers that come from email. What you have to do is to make sure that you have a rule that you only touch email two times. That's the maximum number of times you touch an email. Hmm. So an email comes in. What you want to do with it is to very quickly figure out one thing about that email. When, if it needs a reply. Okay, when does this need a reply? Now, about 20% of your emails never need a reply. Okay, so what do you do? You just archive, delete, fine. You don't even touch it twice, you touch it once, okay? Now, that additional 80% of your emails will need a reply and it will fall into various categories. There's three categories. One of them we already described, never, okay? So never, that's it, you're done with it. The other two categories, either an email needs a reply today, right? If it's an urgent email, mm -hmm. then I want you to label it. And every email service provider has this, whether you're using Gmail or Outlook, label that email, not by the topic, but whether, mm -hmm. when it needs a reply. So if it needs a reply today, label it today. Okay. The rest of the emails, label them as needing a reply this week. Okay. So you're only going to label them one of two things. Every time you get an email, does it need a reply today or does it need a reply this week? Almost never, by the way, does an email need, oh my God, urgent, your house is on fire. If, if your house is on fire, they're not going to email you, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? They'll call you, mm -hmm. they'll text you. They're not going to use email. So almost all your emails, about 80% of your emails will either be something that needs a reply today or something that needs a reply this week. Now, the emails that need a reply today, you put time in your time box calendar. For me, I have one hour every day only to reply to those emails that need a reply today, mm. the urgent emails that need to reply today. So I'm not going to reply immediately. I'm going to reply in that time box in my day. Now, what about the rest of the emails? Mm. Okay. What I want you to do is to have time in your calendar. For me, I have what's called message Mondays. Message Mondays is when I have a three hour block to reply to all those emails in the prior week that I, I labeled as requiring a reply sometime this week. Now, I'm guessing if you're listening to me right now, you're thinking, you know what? That's not that impressive. How come I, I how does that save me any time? Here's where the magic happens. Turns out, of those emails that you mark that need a reply this week, we find that about 50% of those emails, if you just let them simmer, it's like making a pasta sauce. If you mm -hmm. let, the, let it simmer, there's evaporation, mm. right? So about 50% of those emails, when you check them and start replying, you will see they don't need a reply. Something was uh, replied to by somebody else. The thing that was a priority back last week turned out uh, got crushed under the weight of some other priority. And what you will find is that you'll only need to answer about 50% of those emails. What you don't want to do is the email ping pong game, which is a lot of people, what a lot of people do. All the easy emails get replied to immediately. 
because people think, oh, look, I'm so productive. I'm going to get this out of my inbox. Mm -hmm. But of course, if you just as you said, if you send more emails, you get more emails. <laughs> and so you start playing this email ping pong game, of yeah. course. So we want to slow down that cycle. If it doesn't need to reply today, it can be replied to sometime this week. It can wait till message Monday mm -hmm. when you can go through and focus just on replying emails and you'll see, you'll save yourself a tremendous amount of time mm -hmm. using this method. And here you are extremely successful and this is what you use. So you don't, there is this feeling of urgency. Like I have to respond to this person. I feel the same way with texting, the same thing. You kind of feel like you have to respond. And so sometimes you're getting back these tests. It's like, okay, thank you. I mean, <laughs> that's why I laugh when you said 20% never need a reply, but I do think we have this thing inside of us that urges us on to send something. And then, like you said, it just becomes this ping pong and back and forth and takes a lot of your time. So fantastic information in here with these hackback techniques. You have a lot of really cool tech to solve tech ideas, different apps or different programs that you could use. Can we pop to this topic, which I thought was fascinating, of social pressure? And the reason I'm super interested is because when we're talking about childhood, we're trying to get our kids outside to play, there used to be social pressure and a society that was set up in a way that protected that for kids. I mean, there would be someone knocking on your door to ask you to come outside to play. Mm. This is part of the social pressure, part of the fabric of society. The cartoons went off at noon on Saturday morning. And so there's pressure. You've got to go find your own thing to do. But I never thought about it in mm. terms of work. Mm. And so you're talking here about previous generations, that there was social pressure that helped us to stay on task. How interesting. I mean, I, I remember going to visit my dad at work. You know, they had those take your kid to work days. And it would be like, well, sometimes he's just playing solitaire. And he's a hard worker. <laughs> he's, you know, just a, a great dad hard worker. And it was just kind of a joke that we had. But like as soon as solitaire got introduced onto the computer, you're right. It's like you could just be doing that and no one would know. Maybe you're checking email. Maybe you're doing something productive. Maybe you're doing nothing. But it's not as apparent as if you're reading a magazine or having a loud phone conversation with a friend or something like that. So you have at the very end these packs, which we talked about the price pack because that was really intriguing to me, something I never heard of, mm. such a gripping idea. But you also talk about having like a social pact with another person. I mean, this is a phenomenal idea. I've never heard of this. Can you talk about how we can kind of reintroduce this social pressure to stay on task? Sure. Yeah. So we have what we call effort packs. And so a social pact can be considered one of these effort packs where if you have some bit of friction, some kind of uh, resistance associated with not doing the thing you said you were going to do, that can be very effective. So again, we do this last, we do this after we master the internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back the external triggers, because if you haven't done those steps first, you know, if you haven't dealt with the internal triggers of why you're getting distracted, well, then the packs won't help. And that's why I was warning people not to do this first. But assuming that you have these tools in place, you planned your time, you've hacked back the external triggers, having a social pact or a different kind of effort pact, there are several, can be very, very effective. And so one of my favorites is to find a focus friend that simply the act of telling somebody else, you know, at maybe at your office or a friend and going to a coffee shop or sitting down together and just working next to each other, not across from each other, but next to each other so that you can see someone else's laptop to make sure you're not playing solitaire <laughs> can be incredibly effective, right? Just booking that time, I would book it in advance mm -hmm. and say, okay, we're going to meet at this. I do this with my writer friends. Wow. We're going to meet at this coffee shop. We're going to sit down together. Hey, how you doing? Okay, go. 
And then we work for 30 minutes or whatever the time is that you'd like. And even if, you know, maybe you work from home, maybe you live in a remote area, you can use, there's a, a wonderful website that I like so much. I invested in the company. It's called Focusmate. Mm-hmm. And Focusmate is fantastic. It Basically, it connects you to another person with the same goal. So one of my problems still to this day is that once I get going, I'm okay, but it's very hard for me to start. Mm-hmm. So for me in the morning in particular, if I want to start my writing at 8 a.m., sometimes, you know, okay, 8.05, let me get my coffee and, you know, let me just scroll some news. And then, you know, before I know it, it's 8.30, 8.45 and I've wasted all that time. Mm-hmm. So instead what I do is I go on Focusmate, I book a time and I know if I don't show up at 8 a.m. Now I do this, you know, days before. Yeah. So this is a it's called pre-commitment. This is the packed part. Mm-hmm. I'm making that promise to somebody else who depends on me to show up. And if I don't show up at 8 a.m. or whatever time I say, I'm going to get a bad review. Wow. So by knowing, okay, I need to show up. This is focusmate.com. I don't, I, I'm an investor in the company, but I, I'm otherwise not affiliated with it. Uh, I don't make any money on promoting them other than, you know, I, I have sh- some shares in the company. It's a fantastic method, but you can do this, you know, with, with a focused friend in real life too. So that's an example of, of one type of social pact. Well, that's so interesting because it just ties back to where we started. You get a bad review. So that was the whole thing about like, we want to avoid the negative. Right. Loss aversion. Yeah. Loss aversion. You have some other apps in here, which it was cool to see the ones you'd invested in. Like our family loves Kahoot. Yeah. We'll make little Kahoot games for our own family and play them at dinner. That's like something that everybody loves to do. So it was neat to see the ones that you've invested in. But you did have a lot of tech ideas that help you to stay off of tech. So people could check those out in the book. There was a whole lot of different ideas. I really liked this forest one, which I haven't tried yet. But it's so funny. You just have this plant that grows and it's like an electronic plant. It's not a real plant. And you're just motivated Mm -hmm. to not... Like sometimes I'll set my alarm for 25 minutes or 45 minutes. I'm going to read or I'm going to do this. Or I'm going to prepare and I'm not going to do anything else until that timer goes off. But I love the idea of the plant growing. Yeah, it's super simple app. It's free. Uh, my daughter uses it uh, when she does her homework. It's very simple. Basically, you set a timer for how much time you want to work for. And then this little cute virtual tree is planted on your home screen right on your phone. And if you pick up your phone and you do anything with it, the virtual tree gets <laughs> chopped down. So it's just enough of a reminder to tell you, nope, that's not what you said you were going to do right wow. now. And so that that would be an example of an effort pact. So really cool ideas in there for using tech to help solve tech problems. Can we hit one last topic about kids? Sure. This is a fantastic yeah. end of the book here where you go through and you're talking about really the importance of unstructured play. The three things, this autonomy, competence, and relatedness, and how these three things are lacking. And it's showing up in the way that our kids feel. I think for this audience... And the amount of time that we have, the autonomy piece might be the best one to focus on. Can we talk about what kids need in terms of autonomy and how we can start to weave that back in? Absolutely. Yeah, this is, I think, the most important section of the book because, you know, if you think the world is distracting now, just wait a few years. Mm. It's only going to become a more distracting place with virtual reality and augmented reality and who knows what else is going to happen in reality. You know, this will become the skill of the century that children of today who are able to control their attention are the ones that will succeed. And everyone else who lets their time and attention be manipulated by others 
I think they've got a hard path in front of them that we have to teach our kids how to be indistractable because it's a macro skill for everything in life, right? If you, there's so much knowledge out there, there's so much things, so many things to learn, but if you can't focus long enough to absorb those lessons, well, then you're stuck. Wow. So, you know, the best thing you can do as a parent who wants to raise an indistractable kid is to be indistractable yourself. Mm -hmm. Children come born with these invisible antennae that you can't see, but they're there. I'm telling you, anybody who has kids knows. And these antennae are part of their hypocrisy detection device. Every kid is constantly scanning to see where we screw up. And so if you want to raise indistractable kids, you can't tell your kids, stop playing Fortnite, get off of TikTok. And meanwhile, you're checking email and Facebook. It doesn't work that way. So the best thing you can do if you want to raise indistractable kids is learn how to be indistractable yourself and tell them as well what, what you're working on. Be vulnerable. Tell them, hey, you know what? Let's work on this together. This is something that I do with my daughter. I struggle with it. And I, I understand exactly all their tips and tricks and how they, how they hack your attention. I get that. And, you know, it's it's very helpful to be vulnerable and say, hey, let's do this together because these products at the end of the day, they are designed to be engaging. We want them to be engaging. That's why we like them so much. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that we have to be beholden to them. That doesn't mean that they're controlling our brains. So there are three psychological nutrients, just like we have macronutrients for our bodies of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. For our minds, for our psychological well-being, we have these three psychological nutrients, competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And this isn't something I made up. This has been around for at least the past 50 years. It's called self-determination theory. And it mm -hmm. says that when you don't get your psychological needs met in one environment, you look for them somewhere else. Mm -hmm. It's called the needs displacement hypothesis. So if I don't get what I'm looking for offline in the real world, I'm gonna look for those psychological nutrients in the online world. So what are these psychological nutrients? Competency is the first one. The feeling that we are good at something. Well, if you're a child who's constantly told at school that you're not good enough, that your test scores are not meeting a level, that you know, since ever since we started compensating teachers based on standardized test scores, we've had a very teach to the test cultures mm -hmm. in many, many classrooms. And so if you're a person who doesn't feel competent offline, mm -hmm. guess what? As a child, you're gonna look for that online. We look for it as adults too. And you go into the virtual world, you start playing World of Warcraft or Candy Crush or Fortnite or whatever, Roblox, and you feel competent. It feels good. Mm -hmm. Next is autonomy. We know that a sense of autonomy, feeling free, right? And we, we don't like to be told what to do. That's part of our nature, mm -hmm. back to that psychological reactance. And if you think about it, you know, we know that there are only two places in society where you can tell people where to go, what to think, who to be friends with, how to dress, what to eat, and that's school and prison. Wow. And children today, we know, have twice as many rules as a convicted felon. This is the most regulated generation in history. And is it any surprise when we tell kids what to do all day long, they come home, they need autonomy, they need freedom. Now in our generation, our parents said, go play outside, yeah. right? And what do we do? We got in trouble. We went to hang out at the 7-Eleven. We broke things. We burned things. Now, thankfully, a lot of kids don't do that. They come home and they go online, right? And so on one hand, there's a benefit here, right? At least we're not doing the stupid things that we used to do in our generation before the internet, mm -hmm. <laughs> at least I used to do. Mm -hmm. So that's a benefit. And we know that, by the way, all the things that used to hurt kids are at record lows. So we know that truancy, record lows, smoking, record lows, teen pregnancy, record lows, drug use, record lows, except for cannabis. All of these things are at record lows. Mm -hmm. But that's come at the price of, well, kids are spending a lot more time online because they are desperate for that sense of autonomy. Now, how do we give them autonomy? There's a very simple solution, and that's called free play. 
that we know that this is the generation that has the least amount of free play in American history. Mm -hmm. The neighborhoods of this country used to sing with the song of kids playing. You don't hear that anymore. And that is taking a serious psychological toll. I believe that the rise in depression, anxiety disorder among our children is primarily caused because of the lack of free play. Kids just don't have that opportunity. They're so hyper-scheduled with test prep and swimming lessons and all the stuff that we give our kids, you know, football and ballet and all this stuff. They don't have time to just play as kids without coaches, without parents, just time to play. The third psychological nutrient, which this relates to, is relatedness. It's one thing when a parent or teacher tells you what to do. It's another thing when a peer says, hey, if you act like that, I don't want to play with you. We need that sense of relatedness. Relatedness tells us friendships, free play tells us our place in the world. And so if you're not getting that sense of relatedness offline, well, guess what you do, right? These social media products or a Fortnite, they give people the connection that they're looking for. They give kids that relatedness. And so the idea here is to understand your kids' internal triggers, to understand their psychological nutrients, to give them those psychological nutrients in the real world so they don't need them so much in the online world. Well, what's so interesting is that those three words that you said, go play outside, it hits all three. Right. It hits all of them. It hits autonomy, competence, the kids feel good about themselves, and relatedness. This is incredible. I absolutely <laughs> love both books. We talked mainly about Indistractable, but I loved Hooked too. Got so much out of them. Just so much information to make some solid life changes that are really positive and lots of things to think about and talk about, which I love that too. Nir, we always end our podcast quickly with a favorite memory from your childhood that was outside favorite memory of my childhood outside so i i lived in a condominium complex we didn't have a single home but there was always a lot of kids in my neighborhood i remember we had a golf course behind my house i I grew up in central florida we weren't allowed to go on the golf course but we did anyway (laughs) and so that was one of my favorite memories that we would like sneak into the golf course uh late at night when the golf course was closed and just run amok and I'm not going to tell you more. <laughs> That's a good one. Nir, thank you so much for your time. This has been phenomenally interesting. The book, phenomenally interesting as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jenny. If you are wanting to flood childhood with real-world autonomy, competency, and relatedness, then join families all around the globe who are taking the 1,000 Hours Outside journey. It's free to join, and you can start anytime. Just hop on over to 1000hoursoutside.com trackers and download your free tracker sheet today. There are over 15 gorgeous designs to choose from. And if you're looking for a little more support, go to 1000hoursoutside.com slash blog slash all the things. You'll find all sorts of extra resources there. Also, I just slated in new podcast episodes through the next two months. And you're not going to want to miss these. So make sure you are following the 1000 Hours Outside podcast so you're notified of new episodes when they are released. Please leave a review if you haven't already. The more reviews, the more likely it is to get the guests you want to hear from And don't forget to share the episodes you love with your family and friends. Real truth alert, pregnancy, birth, and having a baby isn't all sunshine and rainbows. I wish it were. But the reality is that many people struggle and suffer through this time without the right help or even knowing what they're dealing with. I'm perinatal psychologist, Dr. Katayun Kayani, also known as Dr. Kat. My podcast, Mom and Mind, aims to shine a light on the difficult reality that so many hopeful and new parents experience and raise the volume on how we can better support mental health, which is a big part of our overall health. Episodes include personal stories from people who have healed through things like pregnancy and postpartum anxiety, depression, PTSD, and so much more. 
I also talk with specialists and experts who explain and educate on these conditions. All of this to support parents to know that they are not alone, that healing is possible, and there are resources that can help you today. Listen into Mom and Mind and walk with me through the world of perinatal mental health.